Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Police find out more about the motive of the gunman and the Tulsa hospital shooting. The suspect allegedly killed four people before taking his own life yesterday. He came in with the intent to kill Dr. Phillips and anyone who got in his way. Democrats today on Capitol Hill are trying to make the case for why the federal government should crack down on gun rights. Republicans are pushing back. Meanwhile, some are urging Congress to take the middle ground. That fringe left and fringe right does not help the argument at all. North Carolina may soon join Florida and Alabama with legislation that gives parents more say in their children's education. It's something parent advocates have been fighting for. And we are winning. We are winning school board races. We are winning legislation. A team volunteering to help patrol the southern border encounters a large group of illegal immigrants and a father's plight after getting his family to America. And uh, he took about 20 steps and he just collapsed. The Biden administration cancels billions of dollars in student loans for over half a million students. The biggest student debt cancellation in U.S. history. Authorities are revealing what they found out about the shooting that left four people dead at a hospital in Tulsa, Oklahoma yesterday. They say the shooter targeted his doctor due to continuing pain after a recent back surgery. Here are the details. The Tulsa Police Department on Thursday identified the gunmen and the victims of the shooting at St. Francis Medical Center Wednesday afternoon. The gunman is 45-year-old Michael Lewis from Muskogee, Oklahoma. He went into the hospital for back surgery with Dr. Preston Phillips on May 19th and was released on May 24th. We have also found a letter on the suspect which made it clear that he came in with the intent to kill Dr. Phillips and anyone who got in his way. He blamed Dr. Phillips for the ongoing pain following the surgery. Police say Lewis had called the doctor's office several times following the surgery, complaining of pain and wanted additional treatment. He met with the doctor again on May 31st, one day before the shooting, and called the doctor's office again on the day of the shooting. He purchased his weapons hours before the shooting. At 2 p.m. on June the 1st, Mr. Lewis purchased a semi-automatic rifle from a local gun store. Mr. Lewis purchased a semi-automatic handgun, a 40 caliber Smith & Wesson pistol on May the 29th. Police say they believe the suspect took his own life with the gun just as responding officers were entering the building. The four victims are Dr. Preston Phillips, another doctor, a receptionist, and a patient. The suspect, when he came into the building, into that office complex, he began firing he began firing at anyone that was in his way. Um, There are reports that one of the victims held the door for someone to allow them to escape out of the back door and was shot and killed. Tulsa police say they do not have any information to suggest that the shooting has anything to do with race. Half an hour after the shooting, police received a call from a woman saying her husband had killed several people. She did not seem to know about the shooting in advance, but the gunman had contacted her either right before or during the shooting and told her what he had done. The governor of Oklahoma has ordered all flags in the state to be lowered to half staff for four nights in honor of the four victims. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. The 18-year-old, accused of fatally shooting 10 black people at a Buffalo supermarket last month, pleaded not guilty this afternoon to all charges. Peyton Gendron was arraigned in Erie County Court on 25 counts, including domestic terrorism motivated by hate. The county's district attorney says he's the first person in New York history to be charged with such a crime. It is the first time in the history of New York State that this domestic terrorism charge motivated by hate in the first degree, has been filed. That charge only has one sentence if, in fact, the defendant is found guilty of that charge, and that is 
life without parole. According to the indictment, Gendron's accused of fatally shooting the 10 black victims because of their perceived race and or color. He also allegedly shot and wounded three people, two of whom were white. While not all of the victims were black, the district attorney said attempted murder charges with a hate crime enhancement were filed on behalf of all wounded victims. Gendron's lawyers, who entered a plea of not guilty on his behalf, did not comment following the hearing. And Democrats on Capitol Hill today are pushing a bill on gun restrictions and Republicans are pushing back a heated debate that's been reignited after three deadly mass shootings took place in three different states in the span of just a few weeks. Here's NTD's Melina Weiskup with the latest. Democrats on Capitol Hill today saying the time to restrict guns is now. This is a peculiar American problem. This doesn't happen anywhere else in the developed world and we have a responsibility to do something about it. The House Judiciary Committee is in a special session to debate and pass a bill that would impose stricter gun laws, like banning magazines that hold over 10 rounds. But Republicans say it goes too far and does too little to get at the root of the issue. Who, who here today thinks that criminals are going to read the Safe Storage Act and, and you know, some gang member is going to say, oh, I better lock this gun up or else they'll come and take it. One Republican gives a personal example facing criticism from colleagues. Here's a gun I carry every single day to protect myself, my family, my wife, my home. So this gun would be banned. I hope the, gun, the gun is not loaded. I'm at my house. I can do whatever I want with my guns. Democrats aim to make it a federal law to raise the minimum age to 21 to purchase some semi-automatic rifles and shotguns from licensed dealers. When somebody who's 18 years old and right after their birthday, they go and one of the first things they do is buy an assault weapon, that should be a red flag. Right now, there are six states that have a minimum age of 21 to buy a gun, including the Republican-leaning state of Florida. One sheriff in the state tells me he's confident that the laws in his state have effectively curbed gun violence. So at the end of the day, on our risk protection order, the government's not taking your firearms unless you don't have anyone else to leave them with. That fringe left and fringe right does not help the argument at all. Right now, senators from both sides of the aisle are looking at gun proposals that have the potential to gain enough buy-in from both parties to become the law of the land. Senate Leader Schumer has already vowed to hold a vote on gun control when the Senate returns to Capitol Hill. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. And as lawmakers debate possible solutions, some law enforcers are busy implementing strategies that they say already work. While it's not possible to entirely prevent tragedy, one sheriff in Ohio says he's been doing his best to protect the children in his county. Earlier today, I spoke with Sheriff Jim Fry of Shelby County about his training program for armed teacher response teams. Sheriff Fry, thanks for joining us. Stefani, thank you for uh, having me. County has been training armed teacher response teams for a decade, and you say you've had no school shooting incidents in that time. What do these response teams look like, and what do they do? First, I'd just like to, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're having, obviously, with Uvalde, uh, you know, the nation is uh, very upset as to what happened. And I would like to express my heartfelt condolences to the parents, family members of the children and teachers killed, the school staff, first responders, and citizens of Uvalde, Texas. Uh, yes, we have been uh, uh, training uh, since 2012. Our program started right after uh, uh, Chardon, Ohio, Chardon High School had a shooting uh, February of 2012 to where six students were shot and three uh, passed away. And since then, uh, those 10 years, we've not had uh, one incident of a uh, active shooter. Giving teachers firearms though might seem bizarre and risky to some people. Why have you taken this approach? Uh, our approach is different uh, uh, for a couple of reasons. One is the training that we put them through. And second of all, our teachers uh, that belong to these armed teacher response teams do not carry a weapon on them. They are put in a, a biometric safe that is stored at a, a, a location that is known just to the staff of the armed teachers. It, uh, as I said, was a biometric safe that only that teacher can open that safe. And what exactly does the training involve? 
Um, our training consists of 20 hours of classroom and firearm instruction. Uh, and they are instructed on many tasks such as mindset uh, to include awareness, uh, preparation and rehearsal, uh, the rules of handling a handgun and ammunition. And, and then obviously they'll have a range test and then also a, a competency or written competency test. Their training doesn't end with just the 20 hours. They train monthly, which could be in the school setting or on the range. They train more like a special response team uh, when conducting their training. Uh, if you talk to the, uh, the officers that conduct the training with the teachers, they will tell you that they're more prepared and probably uh, more proficient at firearms than what some of my deputies are. And some parents and teachers unions have pushed back against programs like these. What's your response? I, I, I understand, uh, you know, if you take uh, uh, Ohio, for instance, uh, the Madison uh, school shooting that they had, I believe it was in 2016. Uh, luckily, nobody died, but uh, they started a program with armed teacher response teams down there, but they actually allowed... Uh, their teachers to carry a firearm on them uh, all day long, which I am against, uh, which our, uh, I'm gonna say our, our founding uh, members were also against. Uh, we, we don't, I, there's not a chance with the way our program is set up that a, a child would get the gun or a teacher would accidentally discharge the, the weapon and, and shoot somebody accidentally. Uh, in a non-active shooter situation. And do you think red flag laws are effective at helping to prevent school shootings? Uh, first, I, you know, th th this is a hotbed topic, so I want to first put out there, you know, uh, let me make sure you understand that I am pro-Second Amendment, and I feel it's the right of every American citizen to have a weapon if it's their choosing. Uh, I do believe red flag, red flag laws uh, would have their place uh, because we must have the resources to be able to identify those persons who may be having a mental health issue. Uh, the law would have an avenue for reporting these subjects and have a way of having them appear in court. Uh, obviously, they would want to be heard. Uh, once their issues are resolved, then the court would, could have the right to re, uh, uh, restore their weapons by uh by a court order. Um, do I think that it will stop all mass shootings? No, I don't think so. Um, I, I mean, we obviously uh, have a mental health issue. Um, I mean, if you if you took and, uh, and you went into my jail and you looked at the population, probably about 85% of those people in jail have a mental health issue. Uh, but I think that we do have to have an avenue to where we can uh, identify those subjects and hopefully prevent them from uh, carrying out an act uh, against the people or the citizens. Sheriff Jim Fry of Shelby County, Ohio, thank you. Thank you very much, ma'am, and thank you for having us. Both houses of Ohio's legislature on Wednesday passed a bill that would allow teachers and school staff to carry weapons in school. House Bill 99 now heads to the governor's desk. If it's signed into law, which looks likely, individual school districts could decide if their teachers can be armed, and training requirements would also be drastically lowered. And in North Carolina, the Senate has advanced the Parents', right of, parents Bill of Rights legislation. It prohibits classroom instruction on sexual orientation and gender identity. The Republican majority says it will allow greater parental involvement in their children's education. Here are the details from NTD's Arlene Richards. And we are winning. We are winning school board races. We are winning legislation. Across the country, state legislatures are beginning to hear the pleas of concerned parents who fear their parental rights are slipping away. And yesterday, North Carolina's Republican majority Senate passed the Parents' Bill of Rights, which prohibits instruction that focuses on sexuality in kindergarten to third grade classrooms. Azra Nomani, a senior fellow at the Independent Women's Network, says it's important that parents push back legislatively. 
Right now, we have a school system that is just out of control, trying to get into not only the minds of our kids, but also to their bodies. The bill prohibits classroom instruction on sexual orientation and gender identity. It also would require schools to notify parents if a student asked to be addressed by a different name or pronoun. This kind of legislation is meant to protect that sacred bond between parents and children. Of course, we have to protect issues of children that are not understood in society. We have to make sure that all children are loved and, and protected. But we have to consider parents part of the solution, not the enemy. But Kendra Johnson, executive director of Equality North Carolina, says the bill doesn't include all parents. It completely um, skips over the fact that families come in all shapes and sizes. Um, some families have a mom and a dad, some have two moms, some have two dads, some have a trans parent. She says the bill is particularly bad because LGBTQ content is currently not being taught, making the bill unnecessary. And she has another concern. It would penalize any teachers uh, that sought to support students that are K through three that come to the students um, asking for any support around their gender identity and, be, and force them to be outed. The bill is headed to the House of Representatives, which also has a Republican majority. Democrat Governor Roy Cooper is expected to veto the bill. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. A team volunteering to help patrol the southern border encountered a large group of illegal immigrants. They attempted to reunite a lost young girl with her father, but he collapsed before he could see her. Please note that some of the following footage may be disturbing. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. Someone make sure she's okay first. Okay. The river took her father down. The gentleman speaking in this video is Samuel Hall. He's the founder of Patriots for America Militia. This group is currently volunteering to help patrol the southern border. You know, it's a humanitarian mission. You know, we we go down there and, you know, our, I guess our biggest goal is to disrupt and frustrate, but we have to do it all legally, all constitutionally. You know, uh, we've been able to forge some, uh, you know, very valuable relationships with elected officials and sheriffs uh, in multiple counties uh, over the past eight months. And, you know, they've been uh, trusting us to do what we do uh, the legal way so they don't get any heat uh, from the ACLU or the Center for Southern Poverty Law, et cetera, et cetera. Hall said over 100 people crossed the Rio Grande River that day in late May. And he found a young girl named Sophia who was unaccompanied. Her father had gotten swept away when he tried to cross the river with his family. If you saw in the video, at one point, a man tried to come up and grab the little girl by the arm, and I stopped him. And I said, no, no, no. Uh, and then, you know, sometime after that, the little girl recognized, uh, you know, who was her Tia. We didn't know that at the time. Uh, and, of course, she ran up, and you can hear her Tia saying that, you know, these are bad people around here, you know. So... It's, it's an awful, awful, chaotic, insane, um, you know, situation on the border. But, you know, we do everything we can. Uh, but our biggest, our biggest goal is to definitely take care of the kids first. Hall said the little girl was dehydrated and he gave her some water and then walked her to Border Patrol, which was about a mile away. Her father crossed the river after that. They ended up coming over. We ended up helping them up the bank, a very, very steep, steep cliff. You know, the father was very happy. You know, they were from Colombia. They were seeking asylum. Uh, he introduced us to his family. He said, I finally got him over here. I finally got him over here. I'm so glad my family is safe. And he was praying and he was crying. And uh, he took about 20 steps and he just collapsed. Their team immediately began performing CPR on Orlando as his family members stood close by. In Jesus' name, I just pray your mighty angels, Father God, over Orlando and over his family, God. I just pray right now that you just be Jehovah. EMS and Border Patrol arrived soon after, but they were unable to save Orlando. Hall said it's dangerous what their team does on the border, and it's not only the cartels. Hall recently broke his leg after falling down a cliff. He said their biggest goal is to take care of the kids first. Jason Perry, NTD News. Disgraced lawyer Michael Avenatti was sentenced today to four years in prison. This is for stealing nearly $300,000 from his former client, adult film actress Stormy Daniels. 
In 2018, Avenatti filed two lawsuits against former President Donald Trump on behalf of Daniels, but both suits were ultimately dismissed. Avenatti is currently serving a 30-month prison sentence in a separate criminal case. His attorneys said that 30 months of today's sentence will run consecutively to that punishment. This means Avenatti's total jail time will be 60 months, or five years. And President Biden is cancelling $5.8 billion in student loan debt, the most in the history of the United States. All the beneficiaries are former Corinthian college students. NTD's Colin Fredrickson has more. The Department of Education will cancel all remaining federal student loans for former Corinthian students. The biggest student debt cancellation in the history of America. Biden is canceling $5.8 billion in student loans, but only for students who attended Corinthian Colleges. Corinthian Colleges, Inc. was a for-profit education company that closed down back in 2015 after frequent accusations of deceptive advertising, including misleading statements regarding employment success and improper training. Even Kamala Harris, back when she was the California State Attorney General, went after Corinthian. They called their target their targeted demographic, isolated. They refer to them as people with, quote, low self-esteem. Men and women who were, quote, stuck. She obtained a $1.1 billion judgment against it back in 2016. If you go to a school that proves to be, well, let's just use the word bogus, um, you know, making all kinds of promises and they go out of business, um, that uh, you're not you know, you don't have to pay your student loans. Stuart Siegel is the president of FAFSAassist.com, a financial aid service. Siegel knows students who've gone to Corinthian schools. Employers would laugh at, at, at the fact that you went to Corinthian. The kids ended up with a worthless piece of paper. At its highest point, it had over 110,000 students at 105 campuses, such as Wyotech, Heald College, and Everest. Siegel says schools like these target people who are low income and not financially sophisticated. This should have been done sooner because it, it was, you know, like really a, a huge problem for a lot of people. These were very popular schools. Michael Kitchen is the managing editor at Student Loan Hero, a firm that helps students manage debt. Kitchen says the schools were very popular and many people were involved. The government estimates 560,000 students will benefit from the current action. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. Coming up, a federal judge says John Hinckley Jr., the man who shot and wounded President Reagan in 1981, is on track for unconditional release in mid-June. Find out more after this short break. NTD's Capital Report. It's about getting answers. Cutting through the fog of politics. It's about your questions and our chances to ask. What is the net impact of the American Carson Graves? Thank you for joining us. We're speaking to those in power to find out what does this mean for the people. We're here so you are in the know. A federal judge says the man who shot and wounded President Reagan in 1981 is on track for unconditional release in mid-June. John Hinckley Jr. was found not guilty by reason of insanity in a jury trial in 1982. He was treated at a mental hospital and released more than 30 years later in 2016. He's lived in Williamsburg, Virginia since then, first with his mother and then on his own after her death in August and has been under strict travel and internet restrictions. But in September, he and the Justice Department reached an agreement to get rid of the conditions. Reagan suffered a punctured lung in the assassination attempt, but recovered. Three other people were wounded. Two lawyers in New York are pleading guilty to charges related to their involvement in the George Floyd riots in May 2020. During one of the protests, they threw a Molotov cocktail into a police car and escaped in a minivan. 
33-year-old Yuruj Rajman Raman and 34-year-old Collinford Mattis pleaded guilty today to conspiracy to commit arson and possessing explo an explosive device. Both of them say they regret their actions and understand that they will lose their law licenses because of it. Mattis told the judge that he wished he had made different and better choices that night. Federal prosecutors are recommending sentences of 18 to 24 months. The two of them originally faced up to 45 years in prison under the Trump administration. Prosecutors offered the new plea deals after President Biden pledged to reform the criminal justice system. The House GOP is rolling out a new energy and climate change plan. How does it differ from the Biden administration's agenda? And what's its role in the upcoming elections? NTD's Iris Tao has more. As midterms approach, House Republicans on Thursday laid out a new strategy to try to address gas prices and climate change. The plan contains six pillars, including unlock America's resources, beat China and Russia, and American innovation. Republican Representative Garrett Graves says it'll focus on promoting oil and gas while trying to meet rising demands with renewable energy technologies. It's the beginning of a real policymaking process. Rich Powell, the CEO of a clean energy policy organization in D.C., tells NTD he thinks the plan marks a new step by the GOP. That really for the first time represents a comprehensive conservative approach to dealing with reducing emissions to combat climate change, but also preserving energy affordability. But the strategy is also getting immediate pushback. Some Democrats say fossil fuels must be quickly phased out to tackle climate change. But Dr. H. Sterling Burnett, an expert on environmental policy, notes that U.S. emissions had previously declined under similar policies. And that's not because we were restricting the use of fossil fuels. It was because technological innovations and the transformation from coal uh, to natural gas for electric power generation reduced emissions. And Powell says such a plan could potentially help GOP attract voters who care more about gas prices than the climate. Voters across the spectrum are more and more interested in energy and in climate issues. That's young voters, that's suburban voters. But obviously even more important to the average voter right now is inflation and energy affordability. They see it every time they go and fill up their gas pumps. And House Republicans say they plan to introduce new legislation targeting each of the six policy areas if the GOP reclaims control of the House next year. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. With the EU rejecting Russian oil, Saudi Arabia and its OPEC plus allies are stepping up. They've agreed to increase production to offset the decrease of Russia's oil. This could help with inflation because more supply generally leads to lower prices. It's also happening before President Biden will likely visit Saudi Arabia, the world's top exporter of oil. He'll probably meet Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman there, who Biden blames for the killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. The prince denies the charges. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, fire season has officially begun in California. While firefighters are already working to contain existing blazes, legislators are looking for ways to bring more people into this life-saving line of employment. And the youngest American woman to summit Mount Everest is back from her adventure. 18-year-old Lucy Westlake shares her incredible story with NTD's Dave Martin. Stay tuned for more here on NTD News. California counties are officially declaring the start of fire season, but wildfires have already been igniting throughout the state. Some lawmakers are proposing to increase the number of firefighters to battle the blazes. Firefighters are fighting a bushfire that is burning in the heart of California's Napa County. Named the Old Fire, it's about 570 acres and 45 percent contained as of Thursday morning. Though wildfires have already struck the state this year, Cal Fire activated local fire restrictions last week, officially marking the start of fire season. Back in February 2020, we were able to rely on inmate labor, inmate firefighters, 
we're down 4,200 inmate firefighters from a decade ago. It's time that we finally fix this shortage. As fires burn across the state, the agency is preparing for another understaffed fire season. It's the health and safety of the men and women on the front lines, not going home, whether they're on a fire or in a station protecting one of our 120 cities that we are responsible are 32 counties that we also are responsible for. All of them suck on duty 30, 40 days plus, whether seeing devastating towns like Paradise or the Tubbs or running medical aids and seeing death and tragedy there. But a group of bipartisan lawmakers has a proposal to strengthen the state's firefighting capacity. We're proposing to hire 356 new full-time firefighters to get full staffing on its fire engines. Now the United States Forest Service, they have three people on their engines. Most local and municipal departments, they have three firefighters on their engines. Cal Fire, 2.7. Senate Bill 1062 also proposes adding over 1,100 firefighters in the long term. Cal Fire only achieves three people per engine when forced overtime is implemented. Three firefighters on an engine would become a new mandated minimum in the state of California with this bipartisan legislation. The bill is also mandating 16 additional hand crews that will be 48 firefighters strong. And down in San Diego, our firefighters are either traveling across the state to go help other firefighters or firefighters are traveling all the way down to San Diego to help us. This measure at Senate Bill 1062 will help save the lives of the men and women who help save our lives. Lawmakers said the biggest reason for pushing this bill is health and safety concerns. According to the U.S. Fire Administration, 2022 has already seen five on-duty firefighter fatalities and 48 civilian fire fatalities. SB 1062 still needs to pass both the Senate and Assembly before Governor Gavin Newsom can sign it into law. It's one thing to have a mountain lion as a school mascot, but to have a mountain lion visit a school is completely different, especially when it's an unwelcome visit. And that's just what happened in California's Bay Area. Fortunately, rescuers from a local zoo transported the big cat out safely. The Oakland Zoo received a rescued mountain lion on June 1st. The young male, about six to eight months old, was discovered at Pescadero High School in the town of Pescadero on Wednesday morning. It was found hiding under a teacher's desk in a classroom. According to the San Mateo County Sheriff's Office, all students and staff are safe and unharmed. A lot of uh, San Mateo County is very rural, uh, so there is active wildlife. Uh, I would just, you know, impress upon the, 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 uh, the community to be mindful of it. And uh, if you see it, you know, stay away from it and give us a call and we'll come out and, and do everything we can to, to make the scene safe. The cub was sedated, then transported to a veterinary hospital. According to the Oakland Zoo, he has a badly fractured tooth that will need to be extracted. They said he is too young to survive on its own in the wild, so he will live at an accredited zoo. Until then, the Oakland Zoo will take care of him. And now for your sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. At just over 29,000 feet, Mount Everest Summit is the tallest in the world. And it's long been recognized as the most high profile, if not the most difficult, peak to ascend. Between the cold, the snow, the ice, the lack of oxygen, the steep terrain, and yes, even the dead bodies littered around, it's not for everyone. But Lucy Westlake isn't just anyone. While most 18-year-old girls were worried about what prom dress to wear this past May, Lucy was busy braving the elements on Everest while staring down the tallest point on Earth. When I was at Camp 4 and I like looked up at Everest, I was like, oh my gosh, like I don't think I can do this. Like It looked so impossible. But Lucy persevered and on May 12th became the youngest American woman to reach the summit. The daring achievement has just been the latest in a long line of climbing records for this amazing teenager. At 12, she became the youngest girl to reach the summit of the lower 48's high points. Five years later, she became the youngest female to reach all 50 when she conquered Alaska's Denali, which she puts in the same league as Everest. 
That mountain is very underhyped. Like it is, it's almost as hard as Everest. And physically, I tried it when I was 13, actually. Um, before I, I summited in 17, and there was an accident on the mountain up there. There's a whole story about how we had to turn around. Totally prepared me for Everest, for sure. Now Lucy, who's set to attend USC in the fall, has her sights set on another first, to become the youngest American woman to complete the Explorer's Grand Slam. The challenge entails summiting the highest peaks in all seven continents and to reach both the North and South Poles. Lucy says she climbs to inspire others to greatness and as a message for those looking to achieve the impossible as well. If you have that dream, if you have that passion, like go for it, you know, no, no dreams too big, no mountains too big. Lucy is next set to conquer Antarctica's Mount Vincent this winter as she continues her pursuit of the Explorer's Grand Slam. In the NBA tonight, the finals tip off as Golden State hosts Boston. The Warriors have been off for a week after finishing off Dallas in five games. Golden State is expected to have defensive stopper Gary Payton II recovered from a broken elbow, while Andre Iguodala and Otto Porter Jr. are questionable with injuries. Boston, which saw several star players injured in their latest series against Miami, is expected to be back to 100%, save for Robert Williams III, who's questionable with a knee injury. The series is a contrast of sorts. Golden State's trio of stars Steph Curry, Klay Thompson, and Draymond Green are all in their 30s and looking for a fourth ring to cement their status as one of the NBA's greatest dynasties. While the Warriors are more of an offensive juggernaut, Boston advanced thanks to a stifling defense led by Defensive Player of the Year Marcus Smart. Meanwhile, their main stars Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown are nearly a decade younger than Golden State's trio. A title by Boston will be their first since 2008. That's all for your sports today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And coming up, after three months of conflict, we hear from an expert historian who says Russia has the upper hand and is going to win the war with Ukraine. That and more when we come back. At The Nation Speaks, we don't just scratch the surface. We want to go wide and deep. Our viewers come away with a much richer understanding of the issues of the day. We really make a big effort to bring on different voices onto the show. We don't just talk to experts and newsmakers, which of course are extremely important, but we also want to hear from the American people. So the people who are impacted by the policies and issues that we're talking about, because what they have to say is just as important to the national conversation. With COVID-19 lockdowns largely over in Shanghai, millions of residents are finally allowed to leave their homes. But they find themselves facing a new frustration. Here's more. A two-month COVID-19 lockdown is largely over in Shanghai. But relief is quickly giving way to frustration, with residents now facing hours waiting in line for virus tests and the negative results they must show to be allowed to enter public spaces. Citizens are required to have proof they've taken a COVID test within the last 72 hours in order to enter areas like malls and offices, or even to use subways and buses. Authorities have built 15,000 testing sites and trained thousands of workers to swab throats. But long lines appeared on Wednesday and Thursday amid early summer heat of up to almost 88 degrees. But there are long queues at most of the spots. Someone complained that they had to wait for hours yesterday. This video obtained by Reuters shows residents of a large compound arguing with officials as they remained under a strict lockdown on Thursday, despite being told that two abnormal test results amongst them this week were false positives and not positive cases of the virus. Other Chinese cities, including Beijing and Shenzhen, have imposed similar testing requirements under a national zero-COVID policy that aims to cut off every infection chain. Deep discontent has been sparked by Shanghai's stringent curbs, but China has vowed to stick with its approach. It says the zero-COVID policy is needed to save lives and prevent its health care system from being swamped, even as much of the world tries to return to normal. That means COVID testing is becoming a feature of daily life. China's goal is to have testing sites within a 15-minute walk for everyone in large cities. 
Secretary of State Antony Blinken says the threat posed by the Chinese Communist regime to a rules-based world order is the most serious long-term challenge facing the United States. We can't uh, rely on Beijing to change its own trajectory. Uh, what we can do and what we're working to do is to shape the strategic environment around Beijing to advance our positive vision for an open, inclusive international system. I believe China wants a world order, which is good because order is, is usually better than the alternative. Uh, but the profound difference is this. The order that we've sought to build, very imperfectly, but that we sought to build is profoundly liberal in nature. The order that China seeks is illiberal. We disagree. And it's as, and it's as basic and fundamental as that. Blinken says he hopes Beijing sees how the world has come together to support Ukraine and put extraordinary pressure on Russia. Blinken says the Chinese regime is looking at the situation very closely. He says he wants to make sure the U.S. has its deterrence and defenses built up against any potential threats posed by the regime. Blinken was speaking to the Council on Foreign Relations. He says it's important for the Chinese regime to take the right lessons from Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And he said they should understand the impact of the international community's response. He also said the Biden administration wants to lead the international bloc that's opposed to Russia's invasion into a broader coalition. It would counter what it sees as a more serious long-term threat to global order from Beijing. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said Russian forces currently occupy about 20 percent of his country's territory. And battle front lines now stretch more than 600 miles. Russian troops are advancing in some key cities in the Donbass region. NTD's Trevor Piper has more. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said Russian forces currently occupy about 20 percent of his country's territory, which was about 50,000 square miles. He told Luxembourg's parliament via video link on Thursday that battle front lines stretched for more than 600 miles. We have to defend ourselves against almost the entire Russian army. All combat-ready Russian military formations are involved in this aggression. Battle rages in Severodonetsk, a key industrial city in Luhansk province. Local government said 70 percent of the city was held by Russian forces, 10 to 15 percent was a grey zone, and Ukrainian troops held the rest. He said about 15,000 civilians remained in the city, and a number of them were sheltering from Russian shelling under a chemical plant in the city, and authorities fear it may still have stocks of dangerous materials. After all, it's a privately owned plant. We can't know 100 percent if any chemicals are left. We are assured that there are no chemicals left, but as we can see, there are still some remnants. The local governor for Donetsk, the other province in the Donbass region, said Russian forces were attempting to advance south towards the key Ukrainian-held cities of Kramatorsk and Slovyansk. The Lyman direction. The Lyman and Izium fronts are the main directions in which the enemy is trying to advance in order to capture the territories of Slovyansk and Kramatorsk. Their key aims in the north of the region. During the World Cup qualification playoff match on Wednesday night, Ukraine's national team beat Scotland by 3-1. Not only football fans in Kiev enjoyed the first match since the war broke out, soldiers of the Territorial Defence Force in Kharkiv also cheered on their team. A very small screen in shelter was enough for the men to enjoy their team's triumph at Hampton Park in Glasgow. It's pleasing to the eye and to the soul when I see our Ukrainian boys playing all over the world, in all the stadiums, showing their skill. The triumph means a win against Wales on Sunday will earn them a place at the World Cup finals for just the second time as an independent nation. Trevor Piper, NTD News. After three months of conflicts, some experts predict a Russian victory in Ukraine. Despite the U.S. and Europe's military and economic efforts, some question if the Russian army is in a better position than their Ukrainian opposition, which would be a significant blow to NATO allies. NTD's France correspondent David Vives talked to an expert who says the war could finish this summer with a Russian victory. Between 60 and 100 soldiers dying each day in the fighting with Russian forces. 
That's according to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. After 93 days of conflict, he says the Russian army controls around 20% of Ukraine's territory. As the Russian army advances in Donbas, the Ukrainian army seem incapable of defending their positions. According to historian and author Philippe Fabry, this is where Russia could find momentum to win the war. We are starting to see the results. That is, they are using artillery en masse, and it's working. In fact, that's what he refused to do at the beginning because it was logistically complicated and it meant moving forward. It means moving more slowly, of course. 20 kilometers is the maximum range of the artillery, but it works with terrible destruction. According to on-site reports in the Donbas region, heavy weapons are the defining feature of this new phase of the Russo-Ukrainian war. And Russia seems to have the upper hand with the first use of heavy weapons. We do not see any real progress in a Ukrainian counter-offensive. This has been announced for a long time, especially an offensive towards Kherson. We are not sure that they have the means to do so. While on the other side, the Russians are making progress and are probably in the process of carrying out major encirclements or at least forcing the Ukrainian troops to retreat with heavy losses. On the Ukrainian side, there are hopes that NATO weaponry and ammunition deliveries will give them a chance. U.S. President Joe Biden said Ukraine would be provided with advanced rocket systems as part of a 600 million pound weapons package unveiled on Wednesday, coming just days after he signed a Congress-passed deal worth 32 billion pounds. However, the delivery will take time, especially since Russia has destroyed supply lines. Fabry says the transit of this supply might lose the race against the clock. There is indeed a race against time, because there is this American promise of 40 billion, but it is not yet there. For this type of equipment alone, I'm talking about four to five units of multiple rocket launcher batteries. There will already have been at least 10 to 15 days before it is sent to Ukraine. And once it gets there, it has to be brought to the site. The personnel have to be trained to use it. I mean, if all this is operational in one and a half or two months, it may already be too late. Headlines in the Telegraph also indicate the recent title change towards a Russian victory. There was Putin war has been a fiasco in April, total victory over Putin cannot be bought cheap on May the 12th, to Putin could be about to pull off a shock triumph just last week. Fabry says media narratives at the beginning of the war lack in neutral and biased information, and that the longer the war lasts, the more efficient the Russian army will become. I think there is a danger in this conflict that should not be underestimated. That is the fact that Russia will be more dangerous at the end of this conflict than at the beginning, because it has learned a lot. The Russian army will have learned a lot. They will not make the same mistake they made when they thought they could take the country in three days, which cost them a lot of men and equipment because they stubbornly stuck to a plan for almost a month that could not work. The EU Commission on Monday announced a 90% EU embargo on Russian oil so as to further the sanctions against Russia. But this might take too long to have any real effect. Deputy head of Zelensky's office, Ior Zovkva, said it would be too slow far too late and definitely not enough. Fabry agrees with this analysis. It is indeed. It is an important decision. But it is a decision that should only take full effect by the autumn. And I think that there is the idea among some people, especially the Germans, that maybe by then, anyway, this whole package of sanctions will be obsolete because Ukraine will have lost the war. I'm convinced that this is the real idea behind it. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. Coming up, little things like toothbrushes, toothpaste, shampoo and conditioner are inexpensive and trivial in most people's lives. But to others, they could be life-changing. One nonprofit organization is working to provide homeless women with purses filled with necessities. We'll have that story for you after the break. Toothbrushes, toothpaste, shampoo and conditioner. They're ordinary household things that most of us take for granted. 
But for some people, these daily necessities could be life-changing. NTD Chicago spoke to a nonprofit organization that's trying to help homeless people get back on their feet with what they call love purses. Here's more. Maria Castro is the founder of Love Purse, a nonprofit organization with a mission to provide homeless women with purses filled with necessities. Last March, Castro's mission started with a request for help from a safe haven, also a nonprofit organization supporting homeless people to get back on their feet. During the pandemic, people weren't able to share anything. And so everybody needed to have individualized soap, shampoo, conditioners, you know, toothpaste. A safe haven saw a large influx of women seeking shelter due to job loss or domestic violence. Castro bought the toiletries but says that giving a plastic bag of items to a woman who already feels down seems a bit insensitive. So she bought 10 purses, large enough to fit everything. I took all of the toiletries and as I started putting them in the bags, I felt this overwhelming joy and just thought to myself, I love how this feels. Like whoever opens this purse is going to know that somebody cared enough and thought about them enough to put this together. Castro says that it's important to give the women in need words of inspiration and encouragement. So she put a note and a card designed by her friend into the purses. People all over the world are praying for you. You are strong, you are resilient, you are important, you are special, you are loved. God is watching over you. After sharing her photo with the purses on Facebook, Castro's posting went viral. It just took off. The floodgates opened and people started, you know, bringing purses to a safe haven. Donations and purses began to pour in from across the country, Canada and Mexico. And individuals and organizations even hosted purse parties to fundraise for Love Purse. Nellie Vasquez-Roland, founder of A Safe Haven, shared the reactions of the recipients and the life-changing impact. These women got these purses and were just overwhelmed with joy and appreciation. That's why we have so many people that graduate from our programs that go on and now they carry in it in their own DNA, the idea of what can they do to help someone else in their time of need. Love Purse has benefited more than 6,000 women in shelters since March 2021. Castro will be hosting a gala on October 6th to continue fundraising for this cause. Reporting by Angela Moy, NTD News. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.